standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. This episode is my full chat with Dr. Rachel Clark, specialist in palliative medicine, author of Dear Life, A Doctor's Story of Love and Loss, and brilliantly outspoken supporter of the NHS. If you've already listened to this week's podzine, you'll have heard an excerpt of this interview already. Right at the top, Rachel and I chat a fair bit about the current state of things in the NHS, what with coronavirus, lockdown and government aides doing whatever the fuck they like. So that seemed the sensible bit to put in the pod scene, but please do listen to all of what Rachel has to say, as there are some gorgeous stories of how she's helped people live their last days to the full, some frankly horrifying stats on hospice funding and the heartbreaking story of her dad's terminal cancer diagnosis. If you've not already listened to that podzine, by the way, please do, as there's a cracking chat with Laura Dockrell about postpartum psychosis and the way women are treated in medicine, as well as some info on how white people can strengthen and flex that anti-racism muscle. On that note, it is a tough line between looking performative and actually doing the work. But here on Standard Issue, we've always, quite rightly, worked hard to make our podcast as diverse as possible, which, you know, given we're three white, straight, able-bodied hosts, is vital. And we will continue to do so, obviously. Back to this particular episode, I can hand on heart recommend Dear Life. Is it an emotional read? Yes. Is dying still pretty scary? Of course. But Rachel writes and speaks with such compassion and love for those at the end of their life and those they leave behind to grieve that it genuinely dampens the fear. Hello, I am joined on the phone by Dr. Rachel Clark, specialist in palliative medicine and author of Dear Life, A Doctor's Story of Love and Loss. Rachel, hello. Hello. Now, with everything that's going on, you're going to have to imagine that I'm gesturing wildly around me here. It would be remiss of me not to ask how you're doing. Well, thank you. I, I mean, it's, things are very different to how they were, I guess, a month or so ago when it was pretty daunting, pretty overwhelming mm-hmm. and what was happening in in hospitals and hospices and, and care homes up and down the country was like nothing we had ever seen before. But fantastically, because the lockdown has worked well and because everybody or, or almost everybody has really been amazingly respectful of that, the cases are right down now and I wouldn't say things feel back to normal but they're certainly very different to what they were like in Easter say and so we have I think an air of cautious optimism now in the NHS. You have been brilliantly outspoken in the past about the government's mishandling of the NHS and its workers. How are you feeling about that right now? Well, this is pretty difficult. I mean, we we are speaking just after the weekend when Boris Johnson's chief advisor, uh, Dominic Cummings, came out and defiantly stuck to his story that he had not in, in any shape or form breached the regulations that we're all abiding by very, very strictly in this country for the sake of the entire population. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me as a, a you know, as a, as a healthcare worker, it's pretty extraordinary to see the government apparently care more about protecting the reputation of one unelected advisor than they do about keeping the nation safe. Yeah. If only Boris Johnson had shown even a fraction of his dedication to protecting Dominic Cummings towards all of those thousands of very vulnerable people in care homes, for instance, tens of thousands of whom have died. And and, and personally, 
I think that anything that muddies the public health messaging, anything that makes people think it's one rule for them and a different rule for us, so why am I going to bother with lockdown, is really, really dangerous because the health of us all relies on all of us being responsible and, if you like, having this sense of civic duty so that everybody's protected, especially our most vulnerable members of society, and, and that ought to apply to the government as much as anyone else. Yeah, I keep thinking that I've stopped being angry about it, and I haven't, <laughs> haven't at all. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and I'm the same. And I think particularly if if you work in palliative medicine, I, I've obviously cared for many people who have died from this dreadful disease. And sometimes the most heartbreaking thing is that their loved ones cannot always be with them yeah. either, because we have to have these very strict infection control measures in the hospital so that means we have to really limit visitors until right at the end of life and that may be only one person from a family so all those other people are missing these these desperately important times to be with their families or they're missing funerals because restrictions apply there or maybe they're missing the birth of their grandchildren or they haven't even seen their new grandchild yet and these are enormous sacrifices that I don't think anyone can underestimate and yet apparently the rules don't apply in the same way to everybody and I I find that incredibly painful really to witness. Because obviously coronavirus and lockdown is shining a pretty stark light on a lot of topics not least inequality as we've just discussed but also how we deal with dying has just been thrown up in the air. You must have seen that firsthand. Absolutely. When you work in palliative medicine, one one of the things that I certainly try to do in, in whatever shape or form I can is gently encourage people to confront what is for many people the most daunting and and frightening topic that we ever face that of our own mortality Mm -hmm. that's a huge taboo topic in in modern British society if we don't think about it at least a little bit you can run into desperately sad situations where somebody suddenly does become seriously or terminally ill and maybe their family members are asked do you have a sense of what they might wish for at this point would they want to go to intensive care would they want more treatment or not and as a family you realize you just don't know because you've never talked about it um well now the whole country collectively is suddenly talking about it because there 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 is probably not a family in the country who hasn't been affected by this virus we all know somebody who has died from coronavirus. We've all heard those stories, even if we haven't been affected firsthand. And so whether we like it or not, something that was very much a taboo, that was sort of brushed under the carpet and pushed away into the shadows, it's centre stage. Over 60,000 Britons have died from the disease. And we're all having to think about it. And that's tough. That's traumatic for some people. Definitely. And it's something that Dear Life covers with a real tenderness, I think. Dear Life is an incredible heart-wrenching book and it, I found it was a love letter to grabbing life by the balls, although obviously you put things, <laughs> you put it a lot more beautifully than I've just done. <laughs> Why did you want to write Dear Life? In a way, the book was an answer to a, a really simple question that I get asked 
a lot when I meet someone for the first time and they find out what I do. You say you work in palliative medicine and, and often people will look a bit daunted and they might say something like, gosh, I, I don't know how you can do that. It must be so depressing. Mm-hmm. And actually, I love being a palliative care doctor. I look forward to going to work and it brings me so much joy and meaning in my life. And I think that's because when you work with people who have a life-limiting disease, yes, of course, there is a huge amount of, of grief and sadness, people having to confront huge loss. But at the same time, you're working with people who who look at what they face and so often rise to it with the most incredible strength and and dignity and courage and you tend to see the absolute best of people so every day at work I see people who are determined to cherish the days that remain to them they adore the time they have they love the time they have with their their family the people who are precious to them and there's something about the resilience of the human spirit that you see in a hospice or in a hospital where people are very unwell that is absolutely remarkable and and I think during this pandemic which has been so awful in so many ways in a strange sense a part of me also feels lucky because literally every day at work I am surrounded by colleagues and patients who are facing up to this with the most incredible spirit and it and it's inspirational you sort of come away from work every day feeling as though genuinely people are remarkable there is so much kindness and decency and goodness in people at the end of life people by and large care so much more about other people than they do themselves and that i find absolutely remarkable it's everything that's good about human nature i mean nail on head i cried a lot reading your book <laughs> but it wasn't the stories of, of the deaths of dying that had me in tears. It was the amount of life packed into those limited days, which showed a respect for life that I think we could all learn from. I drive my friends mad because I'm at an age where, you know, late 40s, we're all getting our wrinkles and our grey hair and we all weigh a lot more than we probably like to. But if my friends moan about that, I say, look, genuinely, we are so lucky that we're moaning about grey hair and whether or not we can actually diet in lockdown (laughs) because actually if you're lucky enough to have those marks of age then you're already blessed because some people I care for patients sometimes who are in their early 20s they might even be in their late teens so how lucky are we to have reached the stage of our life that that we we get to grumble about being old and I think the whole spirit of, of palliative medicine is this idea that Every single day of your life matters, whether it's the first day or the last day. And and our job as as doctors and nurses working in palliative care is to try and help people live what remains of their life just as fully and richly as they possibly can. And patients will throw themselves into the spirit of that themselves in a really wonderful way. And all the things that we love when we're healthy – simple little things that we're all enjoying in lockdown like a very nice chilled glass of white wine or a beer in the evening or listening to the birds sitting in the sunshine just being with your family 
all of those little things matter at the end of life as well. And you just see people cherishing those moments and getting so much from them, even though they're tiny little moments of, in, in a person's life. And that's magic. And I think that I definitely learn from that every day. There's a gorgeous quote where you say, I help people live what remains of their life on their own terms, not those of their doctor or their daughter. And I know this is the, the crux of the book. This is what you're doing. And obviously people should definitely read it. But can you give me a few examples of how you have helped people in their last days or weeks achieve stuff and live life better? Yes. Yes. I mean, just sometimes incredibly simple things. So often what patients really love is the fresh air, the outdoors. Mm -hmm. This winter, for instance, I, I was working all over New Year and we had one patient who had spent her life even into her 80s kind of stomping over the fields walking miles and it was bitterly cold outside it was sunny but bitterly cold and she couldn't she couldn't walk she couldn't get out of bed so we thought well that's absolutely fine hospital beds have wheels if she can't get outside let's bring the outside to her so we wrapped her up in blankets and wheeled the bed outside and she just basked there a bit like Yoda all wrapped <laughs> oh. up in her blankets but just felt that wintry sun on her cheek and it was heaven. We really like to break the rules when appropriate if that's important for a patient. So once we cared for a patient who was a farmer and he was devoted to his animals and his wife explained the one thing that would really, really matter to him was seeing his prize-winning bull one last time. <laughs> and so we, we, we decided uh, not, not necessarily to discuss that with the powers that be, but at, at, at some stage, a tractor and a trailer <laughs> drove up into the grounds of the hospital and came round to the hospice garden. And sure enough, he was able to get out and say goodbye to this absolutely enormous bull. This is delightful. Which, yeah, and on paper, you know, that's not medicine. That's not a, a vial of morphine, but that's priceless. That gave him and his family in those memories something so very precious. And I think for me, a good day at work is one where we've managed to achieve something like that for a patient on New Year's Day. I looked after a patient who had watched every single Chelsea football match since he was seven years old. And it just so happened that they were playing on New Year's Day. And so it was a real struggle. We had to scramble. But the best thing that he received that day in terms of his palliative care was getting to watch his beloved Chelsea football team, you know, one last time in the hospice. And, and that kind of thing is so precious. They're such wonderful, wonderful stories. And they contrast really sharply, actually. My, my nana lived a cracking life till the age of 94, but she died in a hospital, she's a very old lady, and we weren't even allowed to take flowers. And I think that's the view that we all have of how we might end up. And that's the view that you're trying to change, I guess. Exactly. I mean, I, I think a lot of people have that fear, don't they, where the, the, the sort of death nobody wants is to be in a high-tech hospital surrounded by machines and drips and tubes and wires, everything alien and, and impersonal. And that's 
even if you're healthy, a very, a very frightening environment. But if you're at the end of life, sometimes all of that paraphernalia, it's not even really prolonging your life. It's actually prolonging the experience of dying mm. and how much better to kind of strip that back and actually try and create an environment where the things that really help at the end of life, which more than anything, I'd argue, is the the comfort and the presence of other human beings, preferably the human beings you love, at your bedside. How much better to have an environment like that? At one stage in, in the book, I, I, I make the point that it's it's astonishing to me, really, that the only two parts of a hospital that really seem to focus on how important our environment is our children's wards which are brilliant at making the environment feel comforting and welcoming and warm to children and actually at the other end of the spectrum hospices where everything about the environment is about life and comfort and bringing tiny comforts to people wouldn't it be wonderful if the rest of a hospital could learn lessons from those environments and we could try and actually think about how do we make these environments a bit less like a kind of soulless warehouse filled with frail people? And how do we make them actually a bit more like homes with all of the warmth and comfort of a home around people? Exactly that. And I love that you quite often, if someone wants to die at home, then you will pull out all the stops to make that happen. And it's also not just our attitudes to death that you're seeking to change for the better, but also those of doctors, of the medical profession, which I found fascinating because that balancing act of having clinical medical removal to be able to do your job, which sort of sees death as a medical failure, doesn't always work with human empathy. It must be a really, really tough one for doctors. I think it really is. And something that I was astonished by when I went to medical school was the fact that the one thing that we were definitely going to see when we became doctors i.e death and dying because that's the one thing that for certainty for all of us we're all going to do it one day i was astonished by how little that was a part of my medical education mm -hmm. all of medical school was about um, fixing the human body or the human mind when it goes wrong it was about diseases and pathologies and how do you fix them there just wasn't really anything about how to be a doctor around people who are dying and how to talk to those people, their families, and actually how to feel about that as well. Because if you're only in your early 20s, you might have no personal experience of that at all. And yet suddenly you're expected to not only care for people who are approaching the end of their lives, but, but also talk to them about it and talk to their families. And what often happens is young doctors especially feel very daunted by that they don't know how to do it but they look at their seniors and the seniors all seem to have this stiff upper lip and they sort of get on and they're unemotional and they don't flinch and so the juniors learn by example that they have to be the same they they have to not admit that they're upset by situations because somehow they're failing as a doctor if they do that and actually it's incredibly moving sometimes to lose a patient even if you know as I often do that they're going to die it can be heartbreaking if you've built up a connection with a patient and of course 
we should, I would argue, build up those connections. That's part of being empathetic and not being a machine. We don't want machines at our deathbed. We, we want human beings. And it's so much better if you can acknowledge to your colleagues that sometimes it's hard and sometimes you might have to cry about a patient. And that's okay because doctors are human beings too. And if you, if you feel able to do that, I think it gives you resilience and it means you can carry on and um, care for, for more patients in the future whose experiences can be upsetting to you. But if you try and bury all of that and pretend it doesn't happen and you're just fine, you're a machine, that way lies burnout or, or worse, becoming a sort of hardened doctor who may not let get anything get to you, but is also pretty callous and pretty unsympathetic and, and not a doctor that patients find they can connect with. And I, I don't think that helps anybody in medicine. Hello there, listener. Jen here to ask you a little favour, if I may. If you're not doing so already, you can follow us on all of the social medias. Well, not all of them because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at InspiraGen, Mickey at Noonan, and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow. I really love that you decided that palliative medicine was probably for you because so many doctors run a mile from it. I always went into medicine believing that all patients are vulnerable. Whenever any of us get sick, we are potentially plunged into a world that's very frightening, very alien. It kind of strips away your power, your identity, you get a, a hospital number, a hideous gown that doesn't tie up and you're worried you're going to expose your bottom to everyone <laughs> as you walk down the ward. You know, we, I mean, most of us have been patients as well as doctors and I've felt all of that myself as a patient. But there are some patients who are particularly vulnerable and particularly disempowered and you know, it's it's obvious who those groups are. It's, there's a socioeconomic gradient in health so Typically, more people are unwell who are not rich or wealthy or powerful. Mm -hmm. They don't have the loud voices in society. And then other groups such as the elderly or people with mental health problems or disabilities are particularly disadvantaged groups. And it was really obvious to me from the outset that people who were dying or who were facing a terminal illness were also an incredibly vulnerable group and some doctors you could see were just not interested in that group they liked fixing they liked doing the heroic brain surgery or the dramatic heart surgery and once there was nothing more life prolonging that could be done for those patients they they sort of they, they just didn't find them terribly interesting anymore whereas for me as someone who always wanted to to care for people because they were vulnerable as patients all the more reason I felt to try and stand up for those patients and give them a voice and try and make sure that they were not forgotten or lost in a busy hospital. I just think that's so important. I mean, it sounds like you had one hell of a role model as well, because throughout the book, your experiences as a doctor 
are interwoven with your dad's story and with his diagnosis of terminal cancer, which changed how you viewed certain things. Absolutely. So I grew up as a, as a little girl, hero-worshipping my dad, um, had him on a pedestal, and he remained there throughout my life, and, and, and he's still there now, you know, several years after his death. I, I used to talk to him endlessly about his medicine, his stories, his patients, and I found it extraordinary what he did. He was a sort of typical old-school little town GP, and he knew all of the families in his town. He'd known some of them for four generations, and he didn't do anything heroic or groundbreaking or sort of headline-grabbing for his patients. He just did this incredible, quiet job of caring for families in his community, and, and, and I could see how extraordinary that was. When he was diagnosed with a terminal illness, I discovered that even as a palliative care specialist, so somebody whose who's day job is death and dying, nothing prepared me for the, the shock and the devastation, really, of discovering that someone I loved so much and, and, and had worshipped all my life was going to die. Um, and I found that incredibly important professionally because it showed me that even though I thought I was a, a relatively empathetic doctor, it, it taught me how little I really truly understood about what other people go through. And that was a very important lesson. I, I didn't know how grief could just cut the legs away from you and leave you in a sort of metaphorical collapsed heap on the floor until I experienced it from for myself and I think it's it's very very important for all doctors to try and hold on to what we don't understand how we don't truly necessarily know what it is like for a patient or a family member because that should make us all respectful and, and humble in a way and, and also curious to try and understand what we don't know and I, I certainly took all of that from my experience of my dad's illness and I hope has brought that back into my medicine so that now I'm, I'm a, a, a wiser doctor than I was beforehand. I felt like I learned a lot about what a hospice can be and what a hospice should be and how if we change our attitudes towards dying and it's always going to be something frightening because it ends up being unknown but we can we can absolutely diminish that fear and that makes it better for us as a patient and as family or friends or someone who's going to grieve that loss. I think it's important to be honest and not try and, and sugarcoat things. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes there's a slight tendency for some commentators to, to sort of say, look, look, there's no reason why we should be afraid of this. Come on, it's it's happening to everybody. It's just normal and natural. Sort of just just get on with it. Stop stop being afraid. Stop denying it. And personally, I don't think that's well. I think it's it's never helpful helpful when doctors tell people how they should think about things, but also. I think it's incredibly understandable why people are afraid of dying. That the fact that we are mortal creatures and we live these lives that we love so much, knowing that one day they're going to come to an end, is enormous. That's an exceptional thing about being a human being, a creature that, that lives knowing it is going to die. However... I think many of the things we're frightened of, we imagine that dying must be hideously painful and full of fear and gloom and despair. 
I think a lot of that comes from not ever setting foot in inside places like like Arthur so so people assume that they're going to be these these awful intimidating places and I think even I as a, as a doctor when I started out I feared that because I didn't know any different but if you actually cross the threshold you discover that there is so much light and laughter and people who are dying actually in a profound sense are no difference to people who are living yes they know the end of their life is coming sooner but it doesn't stop them being able to cherish all the little things that we cherish in our lives every day i think in a way dying is a lived experience by and large we're very good at controlling symptoms such as pain or sickness or breathlessness these days and so it really doesn't need to be a horrible or hideous experience it's very rare for it to be like that for people if you are able to get good palliative care and and that's the crux of the matter because not everybody does but if you can get that care and it should be available for everybody come what may then it's possible i think genuinely to live until you die and and by live i mean have experiences that are positive and sometimes beautiful and sometimes meaningful all the way up until the end and and that's the ideal that's what i think we should be aspiring to to provide for everyone in a civilized society well you just beautifully touched on it there and you touch on this in a postscript to dear life this care palliative care hospices doctors like you carers are vital and yet the nhs only funds a third of hospices which is disgraceful if not particularly surprising could you tell yeah. me how we can fight to change this it is, I think, an absolutely remarkable fact about the NHS and, and, and its government funding, because ultimately, of course, it is all dependent on, on taxpayers. It's a remarkable fact that an institution that is meant to be truly cradle to grave uh, yeah. uh, does not properly fund palliative medicine. So as you say, independent hospices, so, but most hospices are charities, only receive at most about a third, 33% of their funding from the NHS. A lot of hospices receive less than that, not even a quarter, some hospices. It is stunning to me that in a country as well-developed and rich as Britain, we do not choose to, to fund our palliative care of our most vulnerable members of society, people who are actually dying properly through our health service and I think historically this has been allowed to happen because people are so generous in donating to hospices that in a sense the NHS and and above the NHS that the government that's providing the NHS budget they rely on people's generosity and they they know that donations and and charities will step in but there's no other part of, of of core NHS activity where our ability to provide good care depends on how much money the jumble sale raised that weekend. That's just not a model it's for just good mad, health care. Isn't it? it's mad. And so, absolutely. And so, I would urge people to speak out about this right to your MP, even if you just post a message on social media, even if you just tell other people that the only way we'll change this is if there is a clamour to change it and that that clamour has to come from the grassroots upwards. And I, I hope very much that perhaps 
a positive of coronavirus and of this pandemic may be that we are thinking about death and dying much, much more than we ever did before this began. And maybe that means we can shine a light on palliative care and actually make sure that it is funded properly by the NHS and it's a core part of our health care. But the only way that will happen is if you and I, people demand it and say this has to change i tell you what rachel my mp is getting a lot of letters at the moment yes i i can imagine <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> have you written your advanced directive yet uh yes Yay. i have well, yes i haven't and i and i i sort of sheepishly confessed in the book that i hadn't so so an advanced directive is it's very simple you don't need a lawyer or anything to do it it's a written explanation of how you would like to be treated if the worst happened and if you became very seriously ill. And the reason it's so important to think about a a plan, an advanced care plan for you is that way you can avoid a situation where the worst does happen and suddenly your family don't know what your wishes mm-hmm. are. So so for instance, I have written down and I have and I've told my family so they all know this, that if I was seriously brain damaged, you know, in a in a car crash or a, I had a massive stroke or something like that, I wouldn't want extraordinary measures to keep me alive. I wouldn't want to be kept alive for months and months on a ventilator in intensive care. I would rather accept that that is the end of my life and actually I'd like uh, personally I would be very very keen for all of my organs to be donated if, if a catastrophe like that happened and I was able to save other lives through that catastrophe then that would mean a lot to me and it's pretty simple you, you don't even have to write anything down but just having that conversation with your loved ones your husband or your parents means that they know your wishes and then if God forbid the worst happens and and suddenly they have a doctor saying, do do you know what what Rachel would have wanted? They can say, yes, I do, because we talked about it. So it doesn't need to be a a, a big dramatic event. Literally the first step of having those conversations with your nearest and dearest means it's out in the open and everybody knows what your wishes are. and, and, And that seems to me to be a really valuable thing to do. I've got to say, I think reading your book will help people realise how easy that difficult conversation can be and why it is so important. I certainly, when I was reading it, like throughout my tears, chatted with my fella and was like, yeah, we haven't really talked about this, but it seems like an important thing to do. And we had that conversation. So thank you. I mean, especially at the moment, there's been so much talk about what happens if you are elderly and it may be very risky for you to go to hospital if you were to catch coronavirus and it may not be appropriate to go on a ventilator in intensive care because you have to be very physically robust to be able to cope with that treatment. It's a very aggressive treatment. And so actually now having those conversations is incredibly important because if you spoke to your mum or your dad, for instance, and, and, and said, look, I'm only I'm only having this conversation because it's just really important that we all know what each other wants. It may be that a conversation you think is going to be really nerve wracking and, and daunting and might upset your parent actually turns into one where they say, yeah, I've already thought about that. Of course, I wouldn't want that. I'd, I want to stay at home and I'd preferably like to see see you at home. 
And I think that's what often happens. People are daunted and they're worried that they may upset their family by raising this topic. But but I think in a way the opposite. I think it's an act of love and it's an act of kindness to have these conversations because that's the way you can make sure your loved ones have the care that they would want. Rachel, Dear Life, available at all good bookshops, yes? Yes, indeed. (laughs) Thank you so, so much for sparing me some of your time, particularly when I know you're absolutely up to your ears. And thank you so much for all the work you're doing now. It's it's incredible. It's my absolute pleasure. and, And thank you too. It's been great chatting. Standard issue for all women.